to Oh, I Like That, a podcast about things we like and occasionally things we don't. I'm Sally Tamarkin, and I am here with a very special guest, Likehead Nation favorite, Likehead herself, A1 Aubrey Gordon. <laughs> Aubrey, welcome. What's the population of Likehead Nation? Where does Likehead Nation reside? Is there land associated with it? It begins and ends in your heart. There are okay, no borders. Okay, okay, okay. Yes, border-free border Likehead free Nation. In 2023. I love Welcome it. back to Oh, I Like That. It's such a treat to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh my God, I'm thrilled. Uh, we are going to talk about a movie that I'm obsessed with. I We've texted about it. We've talked about it. Now we're going to talk about it on the mics. We're going to have an exploratory discussion. I think we both have like a sense of the other person's like kind of like the broad strokes of our takeaways, but I don't think we know specifics. And also I think this is the kind of movie. Did I say that it's the movie Tar? I don't think I said it. <laughs> I don't you think guys, so. You guys I don't are talking about so. the movie Tar. <laughs> I think you and I are both so fixated on this movie that we were like, of course it goes without saying. We know what we're talking about. Fixated Tar. is the exact right word. Fixated. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, but, but what I was going to say is that I think this is the kind of movie that like you get more out of talking to someone about it than you got out of just like watching it. So I think we're going to have a blast. We will first do a vibe check, as is our our tradition here on Oh, I Like That. Aubrey, what's the vibe for you right now? I mean, listen, this is uh, perhaps a bit repetitive, but I am just like stoked to talk about this movie. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Um, it feels layered in the way that like, you know, Jordan Peele's work feels layered or like it's like mm. part of the sort of uh, pantheon of movies that reward you for watching it again. Uh, and I'm like jazzed to jump. In. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have with you. And the idea that we're having it on mic is like a real extra layer of fun and treat. I totally feel the same way. The Jordan Peele comparison is so good. Oh, thank you. Yes, very good. And I will say, having watched this movie three times and gotten, had a totally distinct experience each time, I think you're totally right about what it, about how it benefits from, from rewatching. I'm, I'm thrilled to dive in. Also, let me just say, I, I'm, you're a repeat guest and I didn't give you a proper intro and I want to give you a proper intro. Oh, that's fine. You don't Aubrey, need to do that. Oh, we're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey Gordon, come on down. Co-host of the Maintenance Phase podcast. The podcast Maintenance Phase. I just sounded like the way one of my parents would describe a podcast. The Maintenance Phase podcast. Author of the book, You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. Published in 2023. Uh, what else? Enthusi <laughs> enthusiast of... Noted Kate Blanchett enthusiast. <laughs> Noted Kate Blanchett enthusiast. Uh, Scorpio. Well, maybe you don't want me to. Do you care? <laughs> we can edit that out. I don't care. Okay. I genuinely don't care. You, I care much more about you being a Scorpio than you do. The the point is, you should check out Aubrey's work. Listen to her podcast. Read her books. Uh, just enjoy. Just enjoy her. And there's your there's your intro. Thanks, buddy. I no appreciate problem. that. No problem. Um, 
since I've, I've, uh, I've done that and made it awkward. I'm going to just talk about my vibe, which is that, uh, it's a Friday, which I'm pretty into a very basic thing about me is that I love a Friday and I dislike a Monday. I'm very Garfield in that way. Couldn't be more thrilled to talk about this major fixation for me. And I'm sort of wondering if like the way once you voice an intrusive thought, it sort of stops being so intrusive. I'm wondering if like, once we get this conversation out, uh, I won't be as fixated. I actually can, I, even saying that I feel like it's false. I feel like my fixation knows no, knows no ends and no bounds. I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast, uh, the worst idea of all time. No, but it sounds like something I'd love to listen to. Oh, it's a real treat. Uh, it is a couple of, I believe, New Zealand comedians who decide to watch the worst movie they can find every week for a year. Oh, I have heard of this. Yeah. Right. So like every episode for a year is about Paul Blart Mall Cop or Grown Ups 2 or whatever. Uh, an old colleague of mine uh, <clears throat> started a podcast called The Best Idea of All Time. And it's just uh, him and a guest talking about Carol every week. That's that is the best idea of all time. Right. I feel like for me, this has Carol potential for staying power. You know what I mean? Like, I think just, that's right. it feels like there's a lot going on here and I fucking live for a queer villain or like anti-hero. Totally. Like I live for a flawed queer on screen and this is the most flawed queer <laughs> on screen. Woo. I love that you said that because like, and we'll, we'll, t we'll get into this a little bit more, but like, I think one of the reactions that some people have had to this movie, by the way, we are going to spoil Tar. Oh, yeah. I think that we'll have a fun conversation, even if you haven't seen it, but we will not hold back. So just like prepare yourself if, if you would rather watch it first. It is streaming on Peacock and I think like on Amazon, like all the places. Um, having said that, like, I think that there is a certain reaction that people have to this, which is like, what is this saying about, or not even what is this saying? Like, why does a bad guy have to be like a queer person? And my thing is like, give us, let us have like queer bad guys, you know? So I, I too am, am really psyched about that. Yeah. I enjoy a queer villain. Uh, it feels emotionally satisfying to me, uh, as a person who has been a queer person during sort of the last, like, 15 to 20 years of like hard assimilationist mm -hmm. politics. I, I kind of appreciate when, uh, we are like hard, not assimilating totally. or are like hard, uh, you know, um, like there is something sinister or there is something, you know what I mean? I'm just like, I, I don't know. I, I get super into it. I totally thought you were, when you started that sentence, you were going to be like, as a queer villain, I, like, <laughs> I'm just really into the representation. <laughs> I really should have your idea is better than screen. my idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I think like the way to start here is to just kind of go through the major plot beats, which I think will be a good reminder for like people who have seen it. And if you haven't, and you're listening, I think this will give you a sense of like what, what happens. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just go through the Wikipedia section of the plot. Um, God bless. Pulling back the the curtain, so you don't think that I I'm doing this on my own. I'm not going to read it, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna like zoom through it. So, the movie starts with uh, Lydia Tarr 
preparing to be interviewed on stage by Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker playing himself. Um, it is in this beginning scene that we learn that Tar is the first female chief conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, that she is the rare EGOT winner, that um, she has a foundation to support aspiring women in conductors, that she has like an unbelievable amount of accolades and is like is working on a book called Tar on Tar, or maybe the books come out. She she's the kind of icon who can write a book about herself and call it Tar on Tar. Um, and through this interview, we learn that she is preparing for a live recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony, um, which will finish uh, a series that she's doing of doing live recordings of, I guess, Mahler's first through four of like the big five. I don't, I can't remember what they're called. The, great <laughs> the big five. five. <laughs> the big five. The five wonders of the The West Coast world. Conference of exactly. Mahler. <laughs> <laughs> right. We then see her have lunch with this guy, Elliot, who is a conductor who is really, and is also involved with her foundation. I think he's like on the board of it maybe. And he's really um, kind of obsequious with her and taken by her talent. And she is sort of dismissive of him, I would say. And um, I think we're just kind of getting to know her a little bit more in that, in that conversation. And this is the conversation, no, where she's talking to him about like, maybe we need to open it up and the foundation is no longer just for women, right? Right, yes. She where you're like, what's going on here? Yeah, she kind of floats the idea that like, they've done, they, they've like accomplished the work they set out to do. And so like, let's just open up this accordion fellowship for for everyone, which Elliot is like, has questions about. Yeah, he's basically like, this is the reason that you created this thing. So we're drifting away from the reason you created it. Okay, question mark. Right. So put a pin in that. I um, mean, it is yeah. uh, it is something that we'll see a lot of in this movie, which is like people figuring out how to register their displeasure with something without giving her explicit feedback for fear of sort of setting her off or getting on her bad side or, or what have you. against mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Yeah. The, what you start to see, I think in this um, scene is exactly what you're talking about, which is that people like whenever there's someone in power, who's a big deal, no one is like it. You can't really be honest with them. You have to kind of just go along with them or like that. That's what is being, that is like what we are expected to do when people are important and they're like cultural icons. If they say a thing, even if you disagree, you go along with it. And and I, there's also a part of Elliot that's like envious of her talent. He keeps asking to look at her, her score, like her notations, because he wants to sort of like understand the magic of her conducting. And so there's also like, I think another thing that's going on is people who um, want a little bit not to ride her coattails, but to sort of be in her glow, her glow. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Even though they have serious reservations about what she's like putting forth. Yeah. There's this conversation has like a touch of like Amadeus and Salieri Salieri, from that particular movie going on, but not with jealousy, more with like admiration and like uh, this sort of conflicted, uh, magnetic draw, uh, that she seems to have to folks 
partly because of her accolades, partly because of how she carries herself mm-hmm. um, and partly because of her talent. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think partly because she is sort of an abusive personality. Like we'll get into this whole conversation, mm-hmm. but like, I also think that stuff can be like a little tractor beam for folks who have, uh, you know, trauma or have experienced abuse that they haven't worked through. And it feels like there's some of that going on. A hundred percent. Yes. Could not agree more. Um, after this scene, we see Lydia holding a master class at Juilliard. Um, and she is in this, in this, like in a room with a stage and a, a piano. And she's kind of like challenging this student who says that he's not really into like cis white male composers. And Tar, what we see her do in this scene is be funny and complimentary and ingratiate herself to the student before becoming like very mocking and kind of like viciously dismissive of what this kid is saying. I mean, he's, he's not a kid. He's a young man. He's basically, he's saying, you know, as he says, as a pan gender BIPOC person, um, I'm just not really like composers like Bach don't really like, I'm just not really interested in them. And this sets her off. Like you can tell it sort of enrages her to her core. Um, and she plays it kind of cool. She tries to do this, this kind of like funny, um, tongue in cheek professor shtick, but ends up just, just being really dismissive and just sort of being like, oh, well, I guess like if all we're doing is reducing people to their identity, then people should reduce you to your identity. Just kind of some really classic like shit that white people in power do. Yeah. She really nailed the shitty professor vibe, right? The like professor that you don't want to have, but has a big name maybe on your campus or what have you, right? Like she really nailed that to the wall. And I think the thing that I noticed on this viewing was what a masterful job she does in her performance of showing the ways that she's like trying to keep a lid on it and just abjectly failing to keep a lid on it, right? Like there is like a clock that is ticking for as long as she is trying to be genteel, and you realize partway through that it's not a clock. It's a bomb. Like <laughs> that fucking bomb's going to go off. Yeah. She's going to go bananas on this person. Yeah. Uh, and she really is like, it is a very classic sort of like professorial humiliation, but in a way that feels uh, like grounded in the curriculum. So you can't, you don't really feel like you can dispute it necessarily. Whew. It's a real situation of the scene. It's a real situation and the student grabs his stuff and just leaves. And he, I think he, he swears at her. He says like, you're a fucking asshole or something like that. You're a fucking bitch. You're a fucking bitch. Okay. What they say on the way out. Woo. Yeah. That's what the student says on the way out. Um, this to me was like the scene that really drew me in the very first time I saw it, because I thought that like you're saying, Aubrey, it did a really good job of showing you exactly how, professors and white people in power um kind of uh, just it eventually turns to condescension and humiliation and anger and um 
trying to turn your words against you. Like when the student says, I'm not really into Bach, Tar is like, well, what if we reduce you to your, um, you know, to, to those, she doesn't say it this explicitly, but she's basically, this student is a person of color and a pangender person. And she's sort of like, well, I guess if you can just reduce everyone to their identity, that's what we should do with you. Right. And it's just, um, I just, I feel like anyone who's ever been spoken to that way can like kind of feel it in their body when Tar says those lines. Absolutely. And I think she also, um, oh, clang, <laughs> um, absolutely. And I think she also does a good job of showing that play out the way that it does, which is that's not, a white person exerting their own power and authority and privilege and influence, uh, sort of out of the blue. That's someone who feels personally targeted by this line of rhetoric and does not know what to do with their own feelings and starts externalizing them all over all of the people around them who have less positional power and who will, um, because of her way of being in the world, she will like never get feedback on this is sort of her presumption. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. She's like, it, it's a personal attack on her and her life's work and everything she's ever done and, and all that stuff. Um, the next thing that happens is that she returns to Berlin. We, we see that she has this kind of like this assistant, Francesca, who's kind of always like following her around and making sure she has what she needs. And you see her in the very first scene when Adam Gopnik is reading Tar's biography, she's like mouthing the words. So we know that, you know, she wrote it and she's very, very, very involved with like Tar's meeting Tar's day-to-day needs. Um, I need to ask you if you remember Aubrey, is this when she gives Tar the book from Krista? I think so. Because she opens it on the plane, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. And then tries to like shove it in the plane bathroom trash. I need to speed through this because we're going to spend the entire time recapping. Totally. Absolutely. In the very beginning, uh, someone is recording Tar on their phone and over the video is texting and it says live on it. And she's, whoever is holding the phone is texting someone and they're sort of um, talking in a, kind of mocking way about tar yeah the very very sort of opening book reading that we see from tar um this person is doing this sort of like instagram live style thing and texting people over it um oh no excuse me that's not the first uh that's not the first message we see actually the very first shot of the film is texting and like IG living. Yeah, it's it's the one where she's asleep, right? She's like asleep uh-huh. on like a a, t- a, cha- a table in a room or a train or something like that. Yeah. Uh huh. And the texts over the top say uh, she's an early riser, and uh, the other person uh, responds that she's haunted, and the person that they're texting with says maybe she has a conscience. Uh, and that's like, I feel like that's just the film being like, here's our thesis statement. <laughs> Conscience haunted question. Who can mark? say? Who yeah. can say? Yeah. So, so that's how it opens. And so we know that 
um, there's someone, there's a, there's a feeling of Tara being watched throughout the movie that we'll come back to like a bunch of times. So Tara is on the plane, uh, and on the way back to Berlin, she goes into the bathroom to take a pill that we know is from a bottle of pills that is actually for someone who we later find out is her partner who has a heart condition. She's taking them. You, I, you assume it's some sort of like benzo to like calm her down, right? That's, it's like an anxiety sleep thing. So her partner is using this beta blocker um, and beta blockers are sometimes used for a heart condition, sometimes used for anxiety, treatment of anxiety. Okay. Um, and it appears that Tar has been like skimming or just taking meds from her partner who yeah. has a heart condition mm-hmm. to deal with presumably her own tension and anxiety. Yeah. Like I'm assuming she does not also have a heart condition. Yes, it is. Um, it is is like made kind of clear if not it's not explicit but that like she is like skimming off the top because they calm her down chill her out whatever but they're definitely for her partner she goes into the bathroom on the airplane to um take the medication in the meantime she also opens the package that francesca her assistant gave her and we see that it is a copy of the novel challenge uh by vita sackville west God, the amount of fucking dramaturgy in this movie is incredible. I, I love it so much. This is oh, this is a thing I don't talk about very much. There was a there was a point in my life where I was like pretty sure that I was going to go to grad school for dramaturgy. I wanted to do that too. And what I, the I fuck, also had Sally? that phase. I also had that phase and that makes a lot of sense because you and I are constantly pausing on screens and then like looking up the thing. Yeah, I think it's a job both of us are well suited to it just didn't come together yeah we're doing it like on a casual uh basis so challenge is a book inspired by the author's love affair with a woman who threatens suicide after their separation (gasps) what yeah so there's an inscription and there's also a drawing of a pattern tar sees the book sees the inscription freaks out uh, tears out a page actually and then shoves it in the airplane bathroom yeah the like the little trash slot. the trash yeah sorry yeah. yeah um she goes home she walks into her huge vast apartment with like concrete walls to discover that her partner is like actually having an episode of like heart palpitations and fluttering and Tara is like oh I'll go get your medicine and she goes into the other room and just takes it out of her bag like she has her partner's medicine yeah she took it on the plane we saw her take some pills on the plane uh and these are those pills and her partner is going I can't find them anywhere I don't know what to do blah 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 and uh Tar walks into the bathroom takes these pills out of her bag which she had on her and takes one out and goes, oh, I found this one in the bathroom. Is this the right one? Like just the wildest play acting of like, I'm going to swoop in like a hero and I'm absolutely the person who took your fucking pills. If if we're not yet question, like seriously questioning Tar as a person, we should be because now we've seen her be an asshole in this Juilliard class, be sort of dismissive and um, imperious with Elliot. And now she's in her own home with her partner whose medication she was, you know, keeping from her and taking herself and then pretending she didn't. So we should at this point have some major reservations about Tar. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels like at this point, the thing we have evidence of is just like constant boundary crossing and like uh, that she has this just sort of way of being that is um, primarily about meeting her own needs with little regard for other people's wants or needs or desires. Totally. Classic. And I say this in a pop psychology armchair psychologist way, classic narcissism. And I say that in a way that I, I don't know if it actually would clinically be considered narcissism, but I, I, I casually and colloquially speaking. Also, like, listen, I, I, I think there is quite a case to make for like, this is like some dictionary definition abuser behavior. At this point, we don't see any interpersonal violence on screen. We're not seeing like sexual assault on screen. We're not seeing any kind of like smoking gun sort of like, uh, here's the like, uh, capital T T T the terrible thing, uh, that she's doing. Right. Um, but you definitely have a very clear sense of her character and it's bad news. I feel like this is one of those places where I'm like, this movie is like a masterclass in identifying very clear, very large red flags. I, I agree with you. And I think actually like one of the things it does really well is it shows you moments of Tar being sort of familiar and affectionate with like, for example, in the Juilliard scene with the student, she's kind of palling around with him a bit with Francesca. She like puts her hand on Francesca's shoulder and sort of, she can, she, she exhibits warmth in a way that is the way that people who abuse, who are abusers pull you in. What you're describing is intermittent reinforcement, which my understanding is psychologically that has the strongest sway over any of us is not knowing that no matter what somebody loves us and not knowing that no matter what somebody will reject us. But this kind of in-betweeny mm. place allows for a lot of room for manipulation, if that's your thing, right? This kind of like conditional support is like what she's all about. And her ratio really seems to be like, you know, 80-20 rejection acceptance or like 90-10. Like it's just enough to sort of keep hope alive. Mm-hmm. For people, it's just enough that you see it and you remember that it's a part of her too. Um, but most of the time with her is sort of deceptive or dismissive or, you know, Absolutely. Shitty. Yeah. And it's like, it's one of those things where that 10% or 20% keeps you going, particularly when the person, you know, in Francesca's case and the student, actually in all of the cases, like this is a person of tremendous power and influence who you know, and as we'll see, like having this person vouch for you in this profession is, is it's, it's materially important to all these people. So in addition to it, just being a really good way to get inside someone's mind and bind them to you through manipulation and control, there are also kind of material consequences for, you know, cutting someone off or, you know, not letting, you know, like, uh, I don't want to say not letting someone abuse you because no one lets themselves be abused, quote unquote. But um, the a lot of these people are in impossible situations. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like she's like almost everybody's boss. When she's not the boss, she's the breadwinner. When she's not the breadwinner, she's sort of like the partner with the upper hand. You know what I mean? Like there's just like 
so many ways this plays out. Oh, we haven't mentioned that um, her partner is also in the orchestra. Yeah, she that's is, yeah. she is her own partner's conductor, which is will add layers to the story. It will, and and Sharon is the concert master, which I am given to understand is uh, there's someone in the in the orchestra who's like. Um, I, maybe it's always first violin. I don't, I don't really know. I would, I'm making everything up as I go, but, but basically is kind of like the person in the orchestra who the conductor calls on for kind of administrative matters and decisions. So like there are scenes where you see Tar, Francesca and Sharon, like getting together to make decisions about auditions and stuff like that. So Sharon's the concert master. So she's kind of, she's not just like the kind of like Tar's employee. She's kind of like maybe Tar, may, not second in command. She 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 has a position that puts her between the orchestra and the conductor, Tar, is I guess what I would say. I'm going to like breeze through the rest. Yeah, totally. We find out that someone named Krista has been emailing Francesca. Tar tells her to just ignore the emails, uh, which Francesca seems uncomfortable with. This whole time... Tar is preparing to record Mahler's fifth. She manipulates an audition process that is supposed to, it's supposed to be an audition process where you don't know who is auditioning. They're behind a screen. Tar manipulates it such that a young woman that she has laid eyes on and has identified potentially as her next kind of like person to be groomed. Um, she manipulates it so that that person basically gets, gets the role gets the and job. gets, gets yeah. the job. Yeah, she notices this person's shoes and then sees those shoes walking out. And then you watch her turn her pencil around, erase her previous notes and write something else or write a different score. I don't know what system they're using. But like when she sees the shoes walk out, she's like, Bloop, edit. It's it's really something. It's, it's really something. So then we find out that... Krista, who has is the one who's been emailing, and I think we also know for sure is the one who sent Tar the book, or it's heavily implied, maybe we don't find out for sure, has killed herself. Francesca is really upset. Tar is kind of going on this whole thing about how she was disturbed. We see Tar um, going through her emails. She searches Francesca's inbox for Krista's name, and she sees that Francesca has not deleted all these emails from Krista as she w was told to. And we get a glimpse, like a very brief glimpse at these emails. And some of them are very plaintive. Like, I can't make sense of what happened. Why won't you just explain this to me? Where did you go? Why did you disappear? I don't understand. And some of them are subject line, all caps, Lydia Tar wants me dead. Right. That there are sort of there is this range of very strong emotional reactions happening, like increasing in, in desperation mm -hmm. where she's saying, like, I, I know I'm a good conductor, but I can't get any interviews. I don't know what's happening. Why did she have me blacklisted? And then Tar looks at her own sent emails and you see a ton of emails that Tar has written to various like orchestras saying, I can't recommend Krista Taylor. She is unstable, like don't work with her really and really and truly has blacklisted this person. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's like, it's the kind of stuff that if 
you were running a hiring process and you got that email, you'd be like, cool, we're going to pretend like we didn't get this application. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, this like now kicks off, uh, this thing that happens for the remainder of the film, which is that Tar starts like hearing kind of like noises. She becomes really sensitive to sounds. She, she's, she hears things like screaming women, lots of beeps and noises. Some of them are real, it seems, and occurring in her house. Others, it's not so, we're not so sure. She starts having nightmares. Um, she starts seeing this pattern everywhere that we saw in the, it's drawn in the book uh, that she gets. We see it in her, they have a daughter, Petra, where um, the, the pattern is made with Play-Doh on the desk. Um, in the middle of the night, there's a metronome going off and Tara goes to turn it off and she takes the cover off the metronome and she turns over the cover and the pattern is drawn on that too. So things are starting to get like real, uh, real twilight zone where it's like real uh does she have a conscience or is she haunted or is she haunted exactly she is trying to sort of ingratiate herself with olga this young cellist who seems totally uninterested well not totally interested in her but not as interested and taken with her as tar wants her to be uh tar tries to kind of follow her into this apartment complex where uh, because she's left, Olga has left something in her car. Uh, things get real creepy down there. We'll talk about that more a little later, but just to speed through it, Tar trips and face plants and busts up her uh, face and shoulder a bunch. She tells everyone that she was attacked. Uh, huge and lie. Does it in this wild, like tough guy, stiff upper lip kind of way. That's like, let's not dwell on this. You should have seen the other guy like that kind of stuff. Totally. Like, Honey, you fell on some steps. What are we doing? Here? What are but we again, doing? like sort of classic self-aggrandizing behavior, right? Self-aggrandizing while also positioning herself. Like she gets to be someone who was victimized, but also was strong enough to refuses victimhood. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Um, so what starts to happen is that like people start questioning Tar about Krista. We should also say that when she hears the news about Krista, it comes from someone who has clearly been selected from within the symphony organization um, to talk to her about this. And it comes paired with the advice to seek counsel that, Oh, uh, that's right. That's that right. Like it's, it is a one, two punch all sort of of a piece in this one scene that Tar learns that Krista has died by suicide and that this person thinks Tar needs, uh, like legal counsel, needs a lawyer. Right. Now, let me ask you, didn't she find out from Francesca, but she's pretending to be learning it for the first time? Oh, that's that right. Scene? You're right. You're right. You're right. I got it backwards. I got no, it backwards. But, but. but. I, what's notable about that is that she she pretends she doesn't know, and that and 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 it, there's obviously something incredibly intense between Tar, Krista, and Francesca that no one else seems to know about. Dating back to Tar's like graduate school work, so it's like a long history back to her time that we have learned about spending. Uh, time studying the music of an indigenous people in Peru. Exactly. Um, that Francesca sort of like talks about remembering and remembering mm -hmm. fondly with Francesca, Tar, and 
uh, Krista. And Krista. So basically what happens from here is that a bunch of like kind of weird things happen to Tar. I think as an audience member, it, you're just kind of trying to figure out which of them happened, which of them didn't. Did any of them happen? Did all of them happen? She gets removed from the, uh, from conducting, she gets removed, I think, from the accordion fellowship and also from conducting, doing this live recording of Mahler. Um, her partner also, um, finds out about what's going on and basically kicks Tar out to this apartment where Tar, uh, works. Uh, she has this separate apartment where she works and presumably also like seduces and manipulates students she's groomed. Uh, so then the next thing that happens is that I'm, I'm skipping over some things, but these are the major beats. Tar, we see her in her little conductor's tuxedo getting ready for like a big night of conducting. And it turn and what she ends up doing is like rushing the stage and knocking over Elliot and trying to conduct the live recording of Mahler and And punching Elliot. Punching Elliot. Like several times. To the point that it feels notable to me that they send out a pair of men to restrain her. That like I it gave me the visceral feeling. I don't know how much of this is in the text of the film, but like you sort of have this sense of like, I'm not going out alone. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there's gotta be two of us. You see her. We're not going out there by ourselves. That's right. Yeah. She does. It's like she gets restrained and carried away. And Elliot actually says to her before she punches him, she said, he says something like you're, you're not like you're out of your mind, but like you're, you're distraught. Like you don't know what's going on. Like you're not in your right mind kind of. Um, the, the, then she goes to Staten Island where she, we find out she's from. She has an interaction with her brother who calls her Linda and says, you've forgotten who you are. She watches some Leonard, Bern, Leonard Bernstein videos. This is where we learn that her name is Linda Tarr and that she comes from a very humble uh, background. Well, and I will say that Leonard Bernstein moment she's uh watching this old film of bernstein and there is a point where he starts talking about how music is for the times when you can't express your feelings when you don't have words and you can't name the things that you feel and she absolutely cracks it's the first time we see like an emotion that isn't like self-protective from her mm -hmm. uh and it's 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 a really notable moment and it feels so pointed to have it be like, yeah, this is a lady who is like her own emotions are completely unknown to her. She is a mystery to herself. Totally. Uh, and someone is saying that back to her and that is what she needed to hear in this moment. It's so intense. It's, it's so, so intense. intense. It's so intense. Um, the movie ends with her in the Philippines conducting a an orchestra that is seems to be playing a live score to a um like a video game or a video game trailer or a movie based on a video game and the audience is full of cosplayers dressed up in various costumes yeah i think that was a callback to in the Juilliard lecture, she talks about like this person said these terrible things, but that didn't stop so-and-so from 
ripping them off for their score for this movie. I think that's the score of the movie that they're playing. Oh, that's interesting. I think so. I think it's like a, it's like some, it was like Star Trek or some something like it's, yeah, it's really fascinating. Fascinating. I had no idea. There's so many things in this movie. So many like hidden things. The Easter Um, eggs are sort of through the roof. Easter eggs. Yeah. I couldn't think hidden things. We call them hidden things. (laughs) So, okay. That is like a pretty, like, somehow way too much and not enough recap of the plot. Um, so let's now, let's now get into the things that we want to get into about this. Um, do you want to like kick us off with like a thing or a question or a, a, an, a line of inquiry? I am curious about the visuals in this film for you. This is not even, I'm, I'm not even actually like looking at our prep doc. Sorry. You're freestyling. I'm totally already freestyling. I apologize. No, I love it. So I think there were two things that stood out to me visually about this movie. And I would love to talk to you about like what stood out to you visually about this movie. Cause I think we got, we pulled different things out of it. Like you noticed the pattern I did not notice the pattern. I was not paying attention to the pattern. Took me three watches, folks. Yes, totally. Uh, So the couple of things that I noticed about this film, one uh, is that the filmmaking, the camera work feels so much like Douglas Sirk to me, who Mm. directed Imitation of Life. And Sirk's sort of main devices were that he would shoot... uh, through a window. So you would see the frame of the window and then see what was happening inside the window or shoot through the screen of a fireplace or something like do these things to force a perspective that made you feel like you were eavesdropping, made you feel like you were seeing and hearing things that you shouldn't. Um, and made you sort of reminded you that there is a barrier between you and what's happening on screen. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. It felt like, straight up Douglas Sirk sort of camera work stuff in a way that I was like, oh, this is exciting and feels right, right? There's like a voyeurism to that that feels like it plays into this sort of social media stuff. And the other thing that stood out to me was this like very sort of like, uh, I would say like early to mid 70s kind of aesthetic happening throughout um, that really seems to be rooting us in this sort of like time and place and look of things that was sort of like, you know, the, the real earnest beginnings of a backlash to like second wave feminism and to the civil rights movement. And like, it is like an era of regressiveness Mm -hmm. and we're, you know, spending time in the power center of that era of regressiveness. I'm curious about for you, a, do either of those things land B Um, What are the sort of like visual elements that stood out to you and what did they communicate to you? Like, what do you make of the pattern? Okay. Let me just say that the imitation of life thing is really cool. I did. I don't know Douglas Sirk. I don't know like the reference, but, uh, but now I feel like I have something to watch. Here's my teeny tiny pitch for imitation of life. It is, um, it, it is sort of crucial in, Uh, I think particularly studies like ethnic studies and sort of racial justice studies um, because part of what's happening with an imitation of life is you are um, seeing uh, these two kids grow up in parallel. One is a black kid and one is a white kid. And the black kid is able to 
um, appear as white to white people and sort of builds this whole separate life. And it is about mm. the grief of being disconnected from your community Oh wow! in like an incredible way. And it's from like 1955 or something. You know what I mean? Like it's from, uh, I believe the fifties it's, wow. it's, it's an extreme, uh, it, it's worth watching. That's what I'm Hell yeah. No, that sounds it's amazing. It's worth watching. It's worth watching. I love it. Um, I also didn't notice the 70s aesthetic, but I do see it now that you say it. I think the thing I, I noticed visually is um, how the the spaces that we're in are, like you use the phrase center of power, and I feel like we're seeing that almost exclusively. Um, places that like tar glides in and out of are these like very upper echelons of this already very like rarefied world of classical music. Um, I also thought that like the way that she was dressed was interesting because they, I feel like they could have gone as sort of like that Porter power suit thing with her, but they didn't really like, we see her wearing, you know, colored shirts. She wears these kind of like baggy clothes, which is kind of interesting. Um, the, the, the palette of this movie is like, there is not a, a color besides like, I want to say like grays and beiges and whites and stuff like that. Like her, her apartment, the walls all look like they're like poured concrete. It's very, kind of gray um I feel like she only wears beige white and black I'm actually really struggling to think of any time we see color I mean one color we see is we see the back of a head of someone with red hair um who is I think meant to be Krista we see her um sitting in the audience at the Adam Gopnik thing and we see her when she's walking into the hotel um where she later is like practicing on a piano in the, what is it? The. Oh, Placido Domingo. Yeah. Placido yeah, yeah. Domingo. Yeah. yeah. We see, we see the, this redhead, uh, watching her basically. I, there's not very much color. Am I like forgetting? No, I think you're right. It's a, it's a real buffet of neutrals mm-hmm. happening in this particular film. Yes, absolutely. I think you're totally right. I think there is uh, a message in that too, right? That it is sort of like, uh, it's a pretty soulless, lifeless kind of world that she has created for. What do you make of the fact that she keeps insulting people by calling them robots? I did not notice that as a theme, but you're totally right. She does call people robots. Yeah, she says it. She calls someone a robot when she's talking to Elliot. She says it. She calls millennials robots when the video of her talking comes out. Did we even talk about the video? No, we didn't. We should. That's important. So so someone has taken the video of her at Juilliard and cut it together in such a way that what was maybe had some plausible deniability around like the point she was trying to make, what her points that were sort of implicit have become. It's it's cut together to to make her sound to to make it sound like she has said things that she hasn't said. However, it, it is, it is revealing the spirit of what she was saying. Totally. So at one point in the Juilliard lecture, she talks about like another composer who said a bunch of racist shit and anti-Semitic shit, uh, and is like, this guy said this thing, but we, you know, that didn't stop us from lifting up his work and da, 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 da. 
Um, this video edits it together to look like she was saying the thing that she was actually quoting this other conductor as saying, blah, blah, blah. The video I think is really fascinating to me because it's, it, it is inauthentic. It is disingenuous and it's also accurate. That, that's what I was trying to say. That's exactly right. It's like she didn't actually say the words in the way that they are being shown to have been said, but she was making all of the points that those words in that order are making. Yeah, which is like ostensibly, right, sort of like a meditation on cancel culture and identity politics is sort of what she's talking about. And her point in all of that seems to be, look, man, uh, we can reduce anyone down to their constituent parts, and that means not paying attention to their work which I think is like not a terrible point, but it's a coming from a terrible person in a bad faith situation. That's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. And like, I think part of what this movie is doing is showing you the rhetoric and then showing you the other actions of the people who use that rhetoric. And that's actually the damning part. It's not necessarily the rhetoric that this movie takes issue with. It's the connection between the rhetoric and this person's actual actions is what mm-hmm. it felt like to me. I don't know how that landed for Yeah, totally. I mean, I um I think this is like a good place to talk about this this one like sticking point for me in the way that I see this movie being received and I feel like this is the closest I'll ever get to one of those people who's like JJ Abrams is misinterpreting Star Wars or whatever, <laughs> like because um there is this review in the New Yorker by Richard Brody that is uh, the headline is Tar reviewed regressive ideas to match regressive aesthetics. And he hated the movie. Um, he like maybe hated is putting words in his mouth. He really didn't like it. He didn't think it was good. He didn't think it was doing anything interesting. He thought it was like a very regressive take on like quote unquote cancel culture that was made with the most sort of um, shallow disinterested engagement with those topics, which when I read this review, I felt like I had watched a totally different movie than him. Mm -hmm. Um, because I I think that, I think you could watch this movie and be like, oh, it's like, it's just another white person in power, abusing their power, being a monster, getting away with it, rebuilding their career anyway you can make that argument. I cannot say that that is not what's happening in the movie, but I also feel like, um, that's sort of like watching, for example, star Wars and being like, Oh, it's just, it's about a bunch of people in outer space and like weird monsters. And they like sometimes kill each other Right, 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 right. as opposed to like sort of engaging with like the way that the movie might be, um, grappling with, themes in in a in a less like facile way and also i think like i mean this is something i want to i'm interested in what you think about this aubrey because when i say this i feel like i sound like a republican who's like why why can't we just tell stories but like part of me is like couldn't this just be kind of a character study of i think that's what it is yeah without it without necessarily saying that like the intent of this movie is to like exonerate abusers or like, can it, can it just be a character study of someone who fucking sucks? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the... So that's a great question. And it leads me to sort of like... I think the telling thing about this is sort of like, what are the questions that you're left with Mm -hmm. after watching this film? Right. Mm -hmm. I think it is a meditation. I think it is a a character study. I think Kate Blanchett delivers so hard. The number of scenes where she is just like pacing, like a caged tiger Mm -hmm. as the movie goes on is like incredible. But like, to my mind, what this film seems to be trying to do is give you a pretty open-ended meditation on separating the art from the artist and whether or not that's possible. Um, And I think there is something here for me. The thing that I was left with is, you know, at the end of this film, Tar has faced all of the sort of like, quote unquote, cancellation techniques that people use, right? Um, To hold folks accountable. And the accountability we have no indication that the accountability has landed for her and we have no indication that she's going to do anything differently or that she can. And so I think the thing that I was left with about this is, um, thinking about like, what do you do when you throw everything you've got at an abusive person, uh, who's in a position of power and it means nothing to them? What then? Right? Like what's the next step? Um, I think you're spot on about like, this is a character study of that kind of character in this kind of situation. Um, and I don't think that that's a be a Republican moment. I think that's a, it's okay to have art that is not leading you to a specific conclusion. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And I I think think this film is not leading you to a specific conclusion. It's definitely not like chill with her behavior, right? Like it understands that her behavior is bad and terrible. It understands the ways in which power structures sort of prop her up and she reinforces them while she's in them. Right. Um, But yeah, it, uh, it it seems to me to be exactly that, like a a much more open-ended version of a conversation that is usually really closed, which is conversations around sexual harassment, um, and, uh, sexual assault and, you know, manipulation and abuse and all of those sorts of things where folks just sort of retreat to the ideas that they have already formed Mm -hmm. on a topic like that. Um, and this is an invitation to explore the ideas that are not already formed. We also see other people who know that Tar is abusing power and is abusing her influence, it it seems to be kind of an open secret that Tar has these, like, protégés that she gives things to and others that she punishes. And no one is really saying anything about it until it impacts their careers. It happens with someone she fires it happens with Francesca. So you see how all of these people are complicit and in some ways are, they're not just complicit in this abuse of power. They're also being abused by Tar. And those are dynamics that I feel like we don't, you know, I think like, you know, organizers and people who think about like restorative justice think about this stuff all the time and talk about all the time. But mainstream conversations about how to deal with people who cause harm tend to not get into this nuance. And, you know, I mean, Tar, the movie to me feels, I think that there's, you can sometimes watch a movie and be like, 
are, does this, does the person who made this movie think we're supposed to like, like this person? Are they like ambivalent about whether or not this person is a good person? With Tar, I don't feel like there's any ambivalence that uh, this no. person, this person killed herself because of the way Tar treated her. I feel like the, the ambivalence is on the part of the viewer because you are left to make sense of everything that you're seeing. And in some ways you're meant to make actual sense of it. Cause there are some things that feel sort of dreamlike and you know it's like it's is tar like we're seeing this through her point of view is she a reliable narrator and it ties into a theme that tar herself talks about a few different times in the movie which is that as a conductor one of the things you're trying to do is interpret this piece of music and try to wrap your mind around what the composer intended without really being able to ever know that for sure. And then also kind of mix that intent or your interpretation of that intent with like what you want to bring to the music. And I think that that like works as a viewer of the movie, because I've seen, I've read so many articles where half the people are absolutely positive that Todd Field you know, this is a meditation on cancel culture and how like the left has gone too far and all this stuff. And then there are other people who are absolutely positive that he doesn't have that intent at all, that this is just a character study, you know? So it's like, we, we, we don't really know, you know, and I've heard him talk about it and he's pretty like, he's pretty tight lipped. Like he's, he's keeping the mystery alive. Um, so I think it, I think it like lends itself to sort of like puzzling it out and thinking about it and talking about it. I think this is the upshot of art that doesn't lead you to a specific conclusion is that it does like it creates this opportunity for really different conversations for sometimes really revolutionary thought and action. And it also creates opportunities because it is sort of throwing the doors open. Um, it also creates opportunities for people to take it in a bad direction, mm -hmm. right? Like, and for totally. people to have, uh, interpretations that reinforce their worldview, which I think kind of all of us do in mm -hmm. some way or another. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's totally spot. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, did you notice the, and I, I linked this in the document, the link mm -hmm. that says this shit freaked me out. Not going to lie. I was just fixated on that. I didn't, I haven't clicked through, so I'm clicking through now. Okay. Click to see spoiler. Whoop. Uh, whoa, after seeing Tar, I saw a few comments on the, around the internet claiming they saw a ghost in Lydia's apartment, but not a lot of agreement on that fact. Now that this is available digitally, I wanted to check out if this was a three men and a baby situation or not. It turns out there is someone in the background and it is spooky. This is a Reddit post. Yeah, we'll link to it in the show notes. What page is this? Oh, blankies. All yeah, right. I think oh, it's blank like, check. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, I did. Yeah, I, did, I hadn't heard of it, but yeah, I think it's like it's like a podcast. And this yeah, it's is a like podcast the subreddit. about movies. Okay. Yep. Now, are you? <gasps> Holy hell! Okay, see that is the reaction. I'm really glad we got that live because is that not fucking creepy? So, what can you describe? Like <gasps> what it, this the is, gift. <laughs> the gif oh yeah yeah the gif is really scary. i so i was doing this yesterday or two days ago and looking at it and i was like very scared it's so that's i genuinely have chills right now <laughs> right so did you my first question is did you notice this no. when you watched it right okay no so these are moments when 
Tar is passing by a doorway uh, in one of these, and you can see a sliver of a person reflected in the mirror that is hanging on the door appears to be what's happening there, right? In that first one? In the in the first two. Oh, is that? I think she's just in that or room. Or just in the room. I think she's Either, just in the room. Either way, creepy as hell. It's a person and, with long blonde hair. Mm-hmm, and you can't see their face. Like, not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it appears to be like a white person uh, who looks to be youngish, mm-hmm. thin, blonde hair. Yep. And then the other one is Tar getting up out of bed at night with her partner in the bed, walking across the room, and the camera pans across a person, that same person, apparently, sitting silently in a chair in the dark in Tar's bedroom. Ah, it's Sally, very, is this actually a horror movie? <laughs> is that creepy. what's coming out of this? Whoa. So that is like one of the questions I've seen people raise. Um, the th- These happen in the movie in tandem with Tar like hearing these noises. So the one where she's getting out of bed, her daughter is screaming and she's going in the middle of the night and she's going to comfort her daughter. And that's where you see that woman. And then I think in the first one, it's in one of the, it's in her own apartment or her like work apartment. And I think it's one of the moments where she starts hearing, there's like the doorbell chime she hears all the time and like a siren. Um, So it, it like sort of, lends itself to the question of um is this part of her sort of like hallucination like her hallucinating because the way she's dealing with everything is almost like she feels like she's being watched and haunted by the people she's harmed or something or is i saw someone say like oh i think that's a younger version of tar i don't know like i don't oh, know oh interesting i i would assume it was krista Right. Like I would assume that that would be the source of the haunting, Mm -hmm. but who knows? I mean, the person does all we really have to go on is hair and a silhouette. And the person appears to have similar hair to her partner's hair, that kind of blonde and curly. And we know Krista has um, red hair. Oh, right. Never mind. We, well, we don't know that we, we think that because Mm. the person that we see watching her is this person with red hair, you know, but, but we, we never really know. But also I think that's part of the mystery here is like that could be any number of women that she has done this to. That is exactly right. That is exactly (sighs) right. And she starts to have these like nightmares. I mean, there's just a lot going on where you start to wonder to what extent are we seeing things that actually transpired and to what extent are these things that she's kind of hallucinating or dreaming? To me, this felt like, and I wrote this in my notes, uh, the number of times I wrote King Lear style descent into madness Mm -hmm. (laughs) is really sort of through the roof. And I actually would edit that too with these images. This feels like extremely Lady Macbeth to me. Oh yeah. yeah, Like extremely Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Um, But either way, it is like very clearly referencing classic tragedies uh, in its sort of making of this stuff and in how it's building tension. I also think if there is a genre to be had here, which I think there's a big debate to have there about like, does this fit into an existing genre? Is it playing with a genre? But to me, it felt like a thriller. 
it felt like the same kind of like, uh, it was much more silent. It was much more slow, but it gave me the same kind of feeling as like when you're watching the Pelican brief and they're like running through empty parking garages and you're hearing this like dissonant piano. Like it has that kind of like, Oh God, my breath is really shallow. My heartbeat is going really fast kind of moments, but it's a very slow paced movie. It's a fascinating combo. Totally. I am. I recommended this to a friend who likes scary movies because I was like, I think this is kind of a thriller. Like, you know, I I mean, particularly after maybe like the first half when things start to get, you know, she's hearing these screams and these noises. It becomes very atmospheric in a way. Um, And there's this whole sequence we haven't really talked about. And I'm wondering if you're interested in talking about the whole Olga apartment building sequence? <gasps> yes. Okay. So there are two things that we haven't talked about yes, yet that feel really important to talk about. One is the Olga apartment building sequence and also just sort of Olga as a whole, like Olga being like, I'm a vegetarian and then ordering veal and something else at their like lunch together. I was like, does she say I'm a vegetarian or I think t- doesn't Tar ask her if she's a vegetarian and she says no. Oh, I could have missed that. I could have missed that part. I could have uh, misinterpreted. I'm not 100% positive. Well, about let's that. back it up then. So I would say there are two sequences that we haven't talked about. One is the Olga apartment building complex. And also, like, what are we supposed to make of Olga in general? Um, and two is we haven't talked about I am Petra's father. Oh, yeah. Holy which shit. is like one of the most incredible like arresting kind of moments that I have seen in a film in a really long time. I was like, this is bitchin. Bitchin. Absolutely bitchin. Yeah. Which one should we start with? Can we start with I am Petra's father? Cause Please. I feel like you were like on first viewing for both of us. So Sally and I have both watched this movie multiple times. We text most days, mm-hmm. you and I, uh, a fair amount. Mm-hmm. And since watching this movie it is like i'm gonna go for like 30 percent of our texts that <laughs> sounds right tar at this conservatively point. yeah another 20 percent is the gwyneth paltrow trial don't worry about it sure it's fine <laughs> did i float the idea of doing an entire episode about the the podcast trial maybe, maybe not. i don't know uh but like i think this was the first moment that you sent to me where you were like holy shit so just to sort of lay the groundwork here a tiny bit. Um, Petra is the daughter of uh, Tar and her partner, whose name I forget. Sharon, Tar and Sharon, Lydia and Sharon. Um, (laughs) And uh, Petra is a kid of color um, and uh, has been getting bullied at school. uh, And, Uh, Lydia and Sharon have a conversation about it and Sharon sort of floats like, I don't want this to be some Biodeutsche thing, which Biodeutsche is a term used in Germany to describe the particular kind of white privilege that white people born in Germany enjoy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're like, maybe it's racist, who knows? Uh, And uh, Tar drives... Petra to school asks Petra when she drops her off to point out the bully to her. Tar walks over to the bully. Hang on. I wrote down what she said. Oh good. I'm so glad verbatim. Uh, 
this is the subtitles version. She's saying all of this in German. The mm-hmm. subtitles we get are, I am Petra's father. She told me a lot about you. I know what you're doing to her. And if you ever do it again, do you know what I'll do? I'll get you. And if you tell any grown up what I just said, they won't believe you. But I need you to believe me. I will get you. Remember this. God watches us all. It is it is the genuinely frightening version of the Liam Neeson taken monologue. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, I will find you and I will kill you. Right? Like this is so much more chilling to me than that. Chilling. Let me say opening with I am Petra's father feels like a gender moment that I just could spend like days unpacking. I need an entire doctoral program in gender studies to like unpack that line. Um, The other thing is like, this is such a classic abuser thing to the point where it's one of the more obvious things in the movie, when someone says to you, you can't tell anyone, especially to a kid, you can't tell anyone because if you do, I'll hurt you and no one's going to believe you because I'm a grown up. It just absolutely does not get more textbook uh, when it comes to like child abuse specifically, but really this goes child for all kinds of Child sexual abuse in particular seems to be the beating heart of a lot of this. Yeah. If she had gone up to the kid and said, stop bullying my kid. You know, I, I, I'll God watches us. That would be like really bad and really creepy. But for me, the extra layer of what makes it so incredibly chilling is telling the kid, you can't tell anyone if you do, I'll hurt you and no one will believe you like that. I mean, that is true monster shit right there. Yeah, it really is. And also I think the other thing that makes this layered and interesting and reflective of a part of who Tar is and how she operates is that Petra is the one character in this film that we show her show any care for Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like actually do any kind of caretaking with, right? We see her playing with her stuffed animals and Petra's like, I'm going to have all of them conduct. (laughs) Tar's like, you can't, that's not how that works. What? Uh, But like you have these like almost sweet moments between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And Tar is very clearly doing this as some kind of like act of service for Petra. And the only way that she knows how to show up, even in a situation that is like in defense of someone that she loves is through like complete dominance. Mm hmm. And like a uh, complete obliteration of the other person and their sort of sense of self and all, their sense of safety and all of that kind of stuff, right? Like this is, to me, this feels like the moment in the film where I was like, oh, she doesn't know any other way to be. Mm-hmm. She hasn't even figured out that you like talk to kids differently. Or if she has, she thinks it's silly you know, or frivolous or something like it, that felt like such a key character moment to me. Um, and such a key sort of learning moment about tar and also about like the kind of parent she is. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, Sharon says to her that her daughter, their daughter is the one relationship that tar has. That's not transactional. Hmm. I I keep coming back to that line because I think like 
in a way, I actually think like it is kind of transactional. I mean, you you described what Tara is doing as like an act of service, which it does feel that way. It doesn't, you know, normally when when a parent helps a kid who's being bullied at school, you don't think of it as like an act of service. You just think of it as like a way that you caretake. But this does feel this has a different feeling to it. And it 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 almost does have a transactional quality to it where um you know, Tar, this is kind of like the one person in her life that she hasn't alienated yet. And in order to keep this kid not alienated, she's going to go deal with the bully. Um, it's also interesting because it also, the the film also feels like foreshadowing of like, at some point, Petra is going to have her own ideas mm. and her own, you know, uh, sort of response to mm -hmm. who Tar is and how she exists in the world and all that kind of stuff. And you can just see that it's, there is going to be a precipitous fall in this relationship mm -hmm. at some point. And we see a little bit of that, but that's much more sort of Sharon's doing of trying to like, you know, we see Tar show up at the school after the TikTok comes out and try and pick up Petra and give her a hug. And you see Sharon show up on screen and lead Petra away. And you hear Tar going, please don't do this. Please don't do this. Uh, so we see some of that, but we don't see like, it feels based on my own experience with people who fit this kind of set of behaviors. I'm like, yeah, I think part of the reason this relationship is not transactional is Petra isn't asserting much yet because she's a young child. And when she starts asserting herself more and having more autonomy, that's going to be a real problem for mm -hmm. one of her parents. Mm hmm. Agree. For Petra's father. For Petra's father. I totally agree. Um, regarding Olga. Um, so Olga is this cellist who uh, is from Russia. She shows up to audition. She's the one who, whose uh, audition Tar manipulates to make sure that she gets uh, this, this role in the orchestra. She also kind of manipulates the situation so that Olga much against kind of like protocol gets a solo in this upcoming performance. Um, and the way that Tar arranges for that is she like traditionally that solo would have gone to the uh, first cellist, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's sort of in the way that their orchestra operates. Um, Tar asks that person for their permission in front of the entire orchestra, which is like the most manipulative place and time to do that. So that that person then has to look like a jerk if they go, no, I don't want to have auditions for this. Right. They, they cannot under any circumstances say no to what yeah. Tar is quote unquote asking of them. Yeah. And we've seen someone say no to her or level a critique before. And that person was summarily dismissed for saying like one critical thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so that part also feels important. And also when that question gets asked, we get a beautiful shot of Sharon's eyes shooting directly over to Olga. Like Sharon is fully aware of exactly what is happening and exactly why it's happening. Yep. Sharon knows what's up. We see her kind of like watching and taking note of all the things that Tara is doing, um, with respect to Olga. So she kind of, she kind of, um, she takes Olga out to lunch and is surprised to, to learn that Olga is like 
she she got into cello from watching YouTube. She doesn't really know that much about who conducted what. She just knows the cellist that she likes, that she's seen on YouTube. She's not taken with Tar in the way that Tar expects everyone to be taken with her. Um, she gets this meal of like meat, this hearty. We, we see her eating in a way that is like the way you eat when you're hungry and something is delicious. Tar is very reserved, is only eating a cucumber salad. Like there's this juxtaposition in what they eat and how they eat. And Tar, I think also we see Tar being sort of like appalled at what she's ordering and how she's eating. Yeah. I read the way that Olga was eating this, this happens sort of at this lunch. There is a conversation about like, Oh, where's your apartment or something like that. And Olga goes, Oh, I'm staying with friends while I'm here until I see whether or not this job like pans out. Like that felt like a very good example of Tar's like complete disconnection with like, what is the reality of the musicians that she's actually working with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but to my mind, like the way that I sort of interpreted Olga's eating was that is the way that you eat when you have not eaten enough in a really, really long time. Yeah. Like this and is when a someone rare else is chance up, at a it's big a free meal. meal. Yeah, yeah, totally. 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 But I also thought it was like kind of showing us something about like Tar's like restraint and her sort of maybe disgust is too strong of a word, but her sort of being like aghast that someone would like eat this kind of food in this way and not like restrain themselves and eat just a cucumber salad. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. She is. Look, if this were someone who she was not actively trying to sleep with, this whole interaction would be like, we're done here. I'm out That's of here. So You're true. gross. Blah, blah, blah. Like, right. Like she would like humiliate that person. You're right. But because this is someone she wants to sleep with and someone she is like absolutely grooming, um, that interaction goes totally differently. And it plays into what we hear other characters reflect back to Tar about her, mm -hmm. which is we see the way you play favorites. Someone says to her at one point. And I'm like, yeah, this is that. This is the playing favorites. This is withholding comment on things that you would otherwise have a lot to say about. This is, you know, all of that. And I think the really fascinating thing about it is none of it lands, to your point. None of it lands for Olga. Olga she's is just not, not picking impressed. up what Tar is putting down. She's not picking up what she's putting down. And she's also just, like, not... You know, they're eating at this restaurant, which Tar tells her has hosted like the conductor of the Berlin Orchestra going back 100 years or something like that. And Olga's like, yeah. And like she's just she's so thoroughly unimpressed and um, not completely cowed by Tar's influence and power and celebrity the way that Tar needs to feel she should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, so they, they have some one on one practices in Tar's apartment. And Tar is giving her a ride home from one of them. And Olga has this like little teddy bear that she carries with her and she accidentally leaves it in Tar's car. So Tar gets out to, she shouts for her and Olga doesn't hear her. So Tar gets out and follows her into this apartment, which is like, it's, it's this like concrete, this like low concrete apartment apartment complex with like a courtyard in the middle. But when Tara goes into it to try to find Olga, it's obviously like 
it seems like it's like abandoned or that the people who live there are squatting there. It's like, it, it doesn't look like a place that has power and electricity and water and that people live there. It's dilapidated for sure. There's a lot of, um, sort of like empty rooms and the sound of dripping water Mm -hmm. coming from down a hallway, right? Like everything's sort of empty. There's like trash around, right? Um, There doesn't appear to be any electricity happening. There doesn't appear to be, you know, any sort of like, it felt cold. The cinematography felt like it was a cold, damp kind of place. Mm -hmm. Um, And Tar is sort of calling out for Olga and looking around for her. And while she's walking through this dark hallway of this building, you are the sort of the, let me take that again. Uh, The camera is following behind her. So we're seeing the back of her head and you hear footsteps and watch someone sort of flicker across the screen behind her and you see her turn around and miss it. And then you hear a dog growling in a way that is super duper scary. Very menacing. And she books it out of there and on her way out she falls on the stone steps to get back up out of the basement of this building and you just hear the dull crunch of her face hitting the hitting the sort of cobblestones Uh, and that's when she starts telling people that she got into a fight and you should see the other guy and she was attacked and all of this sort of stuff to my mind that one felt like a really important and pivotal story moment or sort of tonal moment for the movie, which is sort of like she now understands that she's no longer safe is sort of the message Mm. of that scene. Mm -hmm. But I was curious about like, I texted you about this last night and you were like, save it, (laughs) save it for the show. That's right. I remember that. Um, I'm curious about what, if anything you think we are to make of Olga in this scene when she says, I got to get out. This is my apartment building. And then we are left in this, apparently like abandoned or squatters paradise slummy kind of place it's really hard to know what to make of this because there's something about this sequence that doesn't feel real it feels very dreamy and in fact there's someone online who like posited the theory that like this is all a dream like from this point on nothing none of this is really happening which i don't really think is the case but I do admire the moxie of that, that stance. Um, but because it has that kind of dreamlike quality, I find it very difficult. Like Olga goes into this structure and then seemingly disappears. Like it, it, it kind of doesn't make sense that, um, she sort of evaporates. She evaporates. And even she's walking away and Tar is calling for her and Olga can't hear. And it kind of doesn't really track that she can't hear her. I mean, you're like, okay, I guess, yeah, maybe there's traffic and she's far away, but it, it is sort of surprising that she can't hear Tar calling for her. I wonder. Yeah. New theory by Aubrey. Uh, I wonder if the person who sort of flitters behind her is Olga. Oh, that's interesting. They had sort of a similar kind of chestnutty reddish hair color. It could also be Krista or sort of whoever the person from the audience in the New Yorker was could be any number of things. But I wonder if like, if that's not a dream state, it could totally be like Olga's just fucking with her. Mm -hmm. I think that like taken really literally, you know, Olga does seem like the kind of like 
cool, easy breezy, beautiful cover girl type person who would be crashing with her friends who also happened to be squatters. Like I, so not to be really unimaginative and literal, but I, I can sort of yeah. see that being the case. Yeah. I could see that being the case too. And it felt like the other thing that felt possible here is that this is like another statement of, uh, how out of touch tar is with how anyone else lives. Right. Like we see her driving around. What word was that? (laughs) Uh, we see her driving around town in a luxury car that she drives like an asshole. Mm -hmm. Uh, we see her in her giant apartment that is big enough for a grand piano to just hang out Mm -hmm. and big enough to have a giant cupboard that only has an individually lit metronome in it, right? Like she is being paid well, or at least being, you know, compensated in one way or another, uh, that allows her to live a pretty luxurious life. And this feels like a real hard contrast to Mm -hmm. the environments that we usually see her in. That's sort of the rarefied yeah, is she it, there's a real fish out of water feeling when she's like walking through that apartment building. I will also say this is neither here nor there, but just a lovely little cherry on top of this whole Sunday. There's a sequence at one point where we are watching Tar's Wikipedia page be edited uh to like add more and new accolades mm-hmm. to it. Um, and the voiceover during that segment is her being interviewed on Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin. That's right. You said that. How did you how did you put that together? Because I missed that entirely. I just recognized his voice, right? There are a few Oh, times... you hear his voice too? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. You hear I missed him that. asking her questions. But there are a few of these segments where it's sort of like a little bit of a tone poem, right? Where you're hearing uh, voiceover of like an interview that she did or media or something. Uh, and the thing that's actually like the audio that's playing, uh, doesn't match what's happening on screen, which is some kind of visual indicator of something. So it requires you to pay attention in sort of a double way. You're totally right. But it is artful to me that they got him to do this because I think you know, this is he of calling his daughter a rude little piggy. This is he of beating up paparazzi. And you know what I mean? Like this, this dude has a lot of characteristics that Tar also has. And it felt like really not an accident to have it be his show. Yeah. No, that's such a good call. I love that. That is an amazing Easter egg. I'm so glad you noticed that because I absolutely didn't. I was like, oh, we're in Baldwin territory. Yeah. I mean, like the other thing that he sort of tried to use that show for was like repeatedly interviewing Woody Allen. Right. Like, so he's also sort of like got this politics of like, we need to be rescued. You are so cancel culture. Like it's, it's, he is such a great real world analog for the kind of things that Tar is doing here and the kind of person One thing about this movie is that nothing feels not very intentional. Like every little detail feels like very intentional and very considered. Um, One thing I just want to mention, because I think it's worth mentioning, but we don't really have time to get into it. We should wrap up pretty soon. Is that um, 
there is this like repeating pattern that we see throughout the movie and it seems to be connected to Tar's field work in Peru. Um, and I think that like a, a very surface level reading is that she's seeing this everywhere because it is something that she's like haunted by this situation with Krista. Um, and, but then there's, it, there's an article I'll link to in Collider that, um, I think the headline is Tar is a horror movie. Um, and it's basically, it goes, to, it's, yeah, the headline is Tar is actually a horror movie. And it goes more into these geometric designs that we keep seeing. And it kind of explores the ways in which it's a, this is a horror movie. And um, I thought it was really interesting. I, I, like, I didn't know, Andrea noticed the patterns the first time when, when we watched it together, she's only seen it once. And she's like, oh yeah, that pattern keeps, and I'm like, how did you notice that? Cause it took I me missed it entirely. Entirely. Yeah. I saw it on the third one, but only because Andrea had mentioned it. And then I saw it in all these different places. Um, it's just, it's very subtle. And I think this movie is like, kind of like, it's sort of self-serve in terms of like, do you want to like, watch it several times and engage really deeply with all of these like repeating themes and motifs. Um, do you want to notice all the Easter eggs and like pick everything apart or do you just want to like chill and like watch it once and be like, whatever. Um, and I, I really like that. I like that. It's sort of a, like, you know, choose your own adventure of like how you want to engage with this. Do you have, you mentioned sort of tar is actually a horror movie as a headline for one of these pieces. I'm curious about if you have a genre argument to make or not make about this. I guess I think I would call it a thriller if I, if like, if like pressed to, I think I would be like, it's kind of a thriller, you know, it has thrillery aspects. It has, it has some atmospheric things going on that remind me almost kind of like a David Lynch type situation. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that I would, I feel like if, if someone were to say, like, describe this movie to me in like five to 10 words, I think I would be like, it's a character study. It's really slow. Not very much happens until a certain point when like a lot of stuff happens. It's kind of thrillery. Like, I just don't even know if I would, if I would be able to say one genre. What, what about you? I think thriller is the closest I get as well. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate your point about David Lynch. That had not hit home for me, but boy, oh boy, it is sort of like ambiently spooky yeah. in the way that David Lynch stuff is ambiently spooky. The other one that it reminded me of, this is like a little bit of a deep cut, but it is a movie that I really, really appreciate. Um, it reminded me a bit of Michael Clayton. Did you ever um, see that movie? I have, but not in like ages. Boy, oh boy. A similar sort of like, we're not going to lead you to the place. We're going to show you the people doing the, you know, bad things. <laughs> and then we're just going to watch how this all plays out. Mm, and this movie mm -hmm. is not really going to take a major position here mm. because it was a bigger blockbuster. I think there's more of a push for a more definitive ending yeah, yeah, than we yeah. get in tar. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, which feels like it was always destined for sort of awards category. Right. Stuff. And like mm -hmm. art house film kind of stuff rather mm -hmm. than like, you know, George Clooney in a blockbuster kind of yeah. stuff. Um, but like, yeah, I would say thriller is as close as we get plus some elements of horror. Absolutely. I kind of love the idea of these like silhouettes of people 
hanging out in the background in a way that is like paranormal activity, but you got to look for the jump scare. You know what I mean? Like a magic eye picture of of a jump scare. Like you got to focus enough to let it pop out at you. Totally. I, I just think this movie is, um, more than anything else. Uh, I find it really layered and to be, you know, to use an extremely overused phrase, uh, a really rich text. Mm -hmm. And I feel really more than loving this movie or hating this movie or being like a champion of it or not. It feels rich uh, in a way that not a lot of films get made to be rich (laughs) for a lot of reasons. I agree. I totally agree. Like it, there is a depth happening here and a layeredness happening here um, that I just really appreciate. So just from a craft standpoint, I just am like genuinely so impressed. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way. Pack this much meaning into this little dialogue is incredible. I know. I, I agree. It, there is so little dialogue. Not very much happens. It's so slow. You had written in our sort of prep doc, is this a take on cancel culture? And I feel like there are some sort of like more granular questions that get us a little closer to, is this a take on cancel culture? Cause that feels like a big, that feels like a big question. Right. Um, I think the thing that I was sort of watching for the first time I watched this film is I was acutely aware that this was directed by, uh, cis straight dude. And it's about a queer woman who is like in a position of power. And it's about, you know, a sexual harassment question mark kind of story, uh, that feels very me too. And I'll tell you what, as a general position, I don't know that I need to hear from a bunch of cis dudes about what they think about me too. Right. Um, so I felt like I was watching really closely for things like, can you sort of feel the fingerprints of a cis dude on this? Does this feel actually like it's a defensive position at its core, right? Is this a counter argument to those movement spaces? Is this a saming of the kind of sexual harassment that, uh, straight men, straight cis dudes sort of perpetrate, and the kinds that are possible with queer women. I'm curious about like, what's your take on like sort of broad responses to all of that, right? Like, what do you think? I guess the question is, what do you think are the politics of this film? It's a great question. Does it have a politics? Yeah. So this is like, this is a toughie for me because I think that when I ask the question, does, is this a take on cancel culture? What I, what I mean is, is the, is all this is a take on cancel culture because be, which I, you, there's no way you would know that because I didn't say that. And that's a very different question. But I think the reason that I keep thinking about that is because of the Richard Brody review and also a conversation I had with a friend who was like, I don't need to see another movie about some, about a white person, like not really um, being held to account for the harm they've caused, which, you know, I can't, argue with that. Like, that's fair. Like when people are like, well, I don't want to watch succession. I don't need more TV about white people being assholes. It's like that I support you. Like, great, great point. Um, so far be it from me to try to say that, like, that isn't what's happening or that's not the experience people should have when they watch the movie. I, I don't, I don't, 
I don't think anything can like not have politics and not have a take um, because I just think that that's like sort of impossible. However, I my impression is that what the in, what the like director of this is interested in is the complex interior life of Tar and how she affects and harms other people. And it's like, let's look at that in depth. Let's like, you know, without really an interest, I I think without an interest in exonerating her or making her seem like she's, she actually has a heart of gold or anything like that. Um, to me, it's, it's much, the viewpoint is much, it is not as much about, um, like a, a defensive position or a reaction to cancel culture as much as it is just like an exploration. And I, it's hard to say that for me because I, I kind of feel like that's a cop out when, you know, some, there's a really offensive piece of art, like a, like, um, a, a stand-up comedian does like a, a really intense, like anti-trans like rant and people are like, well, he's just like exploring a point of view or whatever. And it's like, okay, that's not a thing. So it's, you know, I, 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 when I say that, I feel like I'm saying something that isn't, is going to sound regressive and like not land very well. But I, I do, I do feel that this movie is, um, is an exploration. It's kind of like, I think a lot about Pete Campbell from Mad Men when I think about Tar, which is like, like you don't watch Mad Men and think, oh, so is the, are the creators of Mad Men trying to say that like, we should all be more like, it's okay to be like Pete Campbell. Like, I think there's a reaction to this movie because she is a woman and she's queer that people are upset that the takeaway isn't more like explicitly like progressive or something. And, and that to me is something that we don't ask of like, like no one's like, Oh, so now like Michael, what is Michael Clayton? Now we're supposed to, it's okay to be like Michael Clayton. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, yeah. There are certain questions that I think people are asking of this, um, which, which, you know, that's fine. You ask different questions when, because being a woman and being queer has a different social meaning than not being a woman and not being queer. So it's, it's not that I think that that stuff is like irrelevant to talk about or think about, but I, I also think that there's this, um, and I saw it most clearly in the Richard Brody piece, which I'm obviously also fixated on, where there's this like need to have this be a movie that is a um, a takedown of abuse and of abusive people and a a a, um, a dismantling of the like power structures and stuff like that. And that's not what this movie is, but I also don't need this to be that. Like, I I don't need, like I watch Succession and I don't need it to be a movie where like, I don't need like Logan Roy to be punished for being an absolute monster racist piece of shit. That's not, that's not what this is about. Like that's the, that is not the project of Succession. So I feel um, that way. (laughs) That's how I feel. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said here about like it, you know, our conversations about quote unquote cancel culture are really entrenched in a long historical pattern in the US of quote unquote culture wars kind of stuff, right? 
Um, and we shine a spotlight pretty brightly on like, is cancel culture real or not? It, is it just or not? And this is actually pointing that spotlight in a different direction, which is just like, when this happens, how does a person respond? And what does it mean to them? And where does it lead us collectively, right? Like, does this lead to a transformed person in the world of this movie? No, right? So I think rather than going, uh, this is just or it is not, I think it's asking more questions about its effectiveness and it's asking more questions about its effects broadly, right? In like a pretty neutral way. Like when we do this, what happens next? Like that is what it's leading us through. And I think that is, you know, this is a place where, again, your own worldview fills, steps in to sort of fill in the gaps, right? Yeah. And I would say my own worldview says from a transformative justice place, from a transformative justice framework, these are actually really important questions to tackle and to mm -hmm. tangle with, mm -hmm. which is both how do we assert clearly that some behaviors are not okay and we won't tolerate them? And also thinking again of transformative justice, like what does it look like to um, experience that transformation? Does that transformation just mean we exile this person? Does it mean that person changes? How do we evidence that change? How do we measure that change? Like, it asks us to think about not just what feels like our deepest feelings and vocalizing those, but also thinking about sort of the effects of our actions and whether or not they are leading to the place we want to go to. And that feels really scary and like a really high stakes conversation, but also potentially a really fruitful one. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think that um, if you like engage with this movie on its own terms, which I, you know, we can't ever know like the intent unless it's like explicitly um, conveyed to us. But yeah, as this movie is eager to tell us, as this movie wants <laughs> us to understand over and over and over again. But like, I think, you know, there are so many like puzzle pieces. There are so many things that are left unsaid. There are so many things that are left shrouded in mystery. I think that you can reasonably respond to that by saying to engage with this movie the way it's meant to quote unquote meant to be engaged with which by the way I don't think anyone is under any obligation to engage with anything the way the creators like mean for us to but I just mean that it's such a as you said rich text to to engage with the the gray areas and the things that are are left unsaid. And there's no gray area about whether or not Tar is an abusive person who does horrible things and causes harm. That is not the gray area. The gray area is like how she is propped up by various people and institutions of power, how the people who she abuse are some of the people that prop her up, how what you said, Aubrey, which is the thing that like you and I, I feel like talk about a lot, which is like that we, d we don't have any systems in organizers do, and there are communities who do do this, but in a mainstream way, that's really part of like daily life in the United States of America. We don't have a way to deal with the harm that people cause in a way that where people are held, held accountable in a real way. Um, or where um, that harm is repaired in a real way. Like we have a very crime and punishment way of dealing with things. So it's like you do something wrong, you go to jail, you get in trouble, you get, you get punished. Does that mean that 
anyone, any harm is repaired? Does that mean accountability is real? Like, no. Yeah. And I mean, I think even many of our like in community accountability systems, um, are not carceral in the sense that they send folks to jail, but use a very carceral logic of like, we just need to sequester this person so they can't keep hurting people. And I think that there is, um, space following sort of these kinds of meditations on like, how effective is this? Are our tactics matching up to the world that we want to create? And are they leading us to the world that we want to create? Right? Like, it just feels like there is a bunch here to talk about in terms of, you know, we've had a theory of change. Is that bearing out? What else might bear out differently or better or worse or whatever? So well said. Or whatever. So well Or whatever. <laughs> I guess we kind of covered this. What, if anything, is the film trying to say about queer women? I don't know that it is trying to say a lot about queer women. I think what it's trying to do more than that is create this fictional character who doesn't cleanly map on to a Harvey Weinstein or a Matt Lauer or a what have you, right? Um, so that we can have enough sort of willing suspension of disbelief to engage in a conversation about abuse and, you know, harassment and, uh, quote unquote cancel culture, um, in a way that is like a little more liminal than we normally do less debate style, more sort of like open yourself up to this sort of set of meditations kind of thing. Um, and I think that that's the main function of having her be a queer lady is to be like, this is different. Don't be thinking about other specific dudes that you might be trying to like pin this to. Yeah. That was my takeaway. I'm curious about yours. No, I mean, same. I think that that's really smart. I think that like, you know, I, I feel like I saw a couple of takes online that were like, oh, so like this abuser has to be a queer person. And it's like, I, th I think we get a little bit mixed up as, um, for example, like queer people or, um, well, yeah, queer people, like where we think that we want, we want more representation and then it has to be, um, how can I say this without basically like white women are, <laughs> are, um, are perpetrators and upholders of, um, patriarchy and white supremacy. Um, and the fact that being, have you ever seen that meme, Aubrey, where it's someone who, um, they have a cut on their arm and over the cut, it says white privilege and they're putting a bandaid on it. And the bandaid says queer identity. Yes. I have seen that one. Totally. Totally. You know, it, it's yeah. like, it, it's like, we, we can't be, or I guess I can't say we can't be, but like when, when you look at things like um, who is the bad guy? Are they queer or not queer? It, it like, to me, that is like, I, I, you know, like you said at the beginning, like I want to see, uh, bad guys and maybe, um, you know, gray area morally guys, um, who are queer too. Like what, you know, I, I just, I, I think it's like, it's, it's when we ask that question, it's not like we shouldn't like ask that question, I guess, but I, what we end up doing is collapsing everything into like, is this good representation of me or something like that, which I just, I just don't think is a very 
like, for me, that's not a very interesting way to engage with something I'm watching, but it also has, it is, it removes kind of like racial politics from it too, in a way that I don't think is useful. Does that make any sense? That makes sense to me. I mean, I think, look, I'll say this. One of my favorite pieces of queer rep is also one of my favorite pieces of fat rep. And that's, uh, can you ever forgive me? Which is, Oh my God, Sally. (laughs) Okay. This is your woo. Hello. This is your homework for the weekend. I'm your friend giving you homework. (laughs) I love it. I love getting homework, but only from friends. Um, so, uh, can you ever forgive me is the true story of an author named Lee Israel who was down on her luck and her books were not selling. And she I have started seen this. forging letters. This fake is Melissa letters. McCarthy, right? And it's Melissa McCarthy. I have Anna seen Smith. I, I forgot the, um, I forgot the title of it. Mm, good. I'm glad that you've seen it, but like, that is a story of someone who is not clearly a hero. The arc that she gets is she is an asshole and her, the big climax of her story is realizing that she's an asshole and being like, maybe I'll be less of an asshole in the future. That feels like as important a story to me to tell as like, um, you know, uh, representation that would pass more tests of queer or fat representation. I feel like the the thing that I have said about fat stories holds true for queer stories for me, which is I want every kind of fat story to be yeah. able to be told. I want mm-hmm. every kind of queer story to be able to be told. And Tar is a kind of queer story, right? Like there are absolutely queer people and uh, queer white folks and queer white women who are in positions of upholding systems of oppression and I think that's important to look at too I feel like we did it I mean I feel like you know we we could go on more but we shouldn't um yeah that's right I feel like I could talk about this for seven more days and also I will you know start taking a nap on Mike at some point a hundred percent I I will say like there's so much more here that we didn't even like get to like a lot of other stuff in the movie so anyway I think everyone should, I don't think everyone should watch it. I think if any of what we've said sounds interesting and intriguing, you should watch it. I think that's right. I think folks will self-select into this one. If you're into slow paced tension building, not a lot happening, but a ton to unpack, which I absolutely, that's where I live. That's my favorite. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so like, if that's for you, then this is for you. And I feel totally comfortable saying that this is not a movie that's going to be for. Totally. I do too. I, and the other thing is like, if you want to watch Kate Blanchett act for two hours and 38 minutes, you've come to the right place because she is acting her face off and it's a long ass movie. And I, I normally am like of the belief that all movies should be 86 minutes unless they get special dispensation. So the fact that like, I was into all two hours and 38 minutes of this. It feels, feels noteworthy. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. It is long. And by the time you get to the third act, it all pays off it, yeah. for me. Totally. Um, okay. Aubrey, let's talk about a nice thing to end on. Do you have something? I do have something. Uh, this 
last weekend was the opening weekend of the National Women's Soccer League, uh, which uh, those who know me well know that I am a uh, conflicted but still a super fan of the Portland Thorns. Uh, And it is so fun to head into the season knowing that it's a little bit longer than usual and that we will take a break from this season for the Women's World Cup, which is one of the great, like, this feels very on theme for me. Like, let's all go watch very competitive women who are mostly queer from all around the world uh, compete at, like, the highest level possible is, like, really incredible. I love everything about women's soccer. What? Nah, hang on. There are extremely bad things about women's soccer. I love everything about the players <laughs> of women's soccer and watching them play the game. Uh, and I am like over the moon that soccer is back. Uh, and I have, you know, soccer gossip to tend to and games to watch and all. Of- I'm so excited for you. This is great. And the fact that you get to like pause for the World Cup and then come back to it. Oh, oh. What could be better? Listen, I am going to, since I don't have the homework to give you that is watching Can You Ever Forgive Me? I'm mm-hmm. going to save that for this summer and be yeah. like, Sally, it's time to watch a Women's World Cup game. I, I know. Like. I got to do it. I got to do it. I, I have a friend who's really into women's soccer. And I feel like what I need to do is just, um, I feel like if Philly had a team, that would help. But mm-hmm. we talked about this. I just need to adopt a team and just get really into it. You got Gotham right there. They're good. Yeah. They're yeah. good, good. Um, anyway, like, oh my God, you've got one of the best players in the country. Woo. Woo. Amazing. Uh, anyway, uh, that's my nice thing to end on. It's very shaggy. It's very it's whatever. It's but perfect. Like, it makes me so happy. Uh, it's also, I think, widely speculated to be the last season for Christine Sinclair, who is the captain of the Portland Thorns, who is little known fact, much less known than it should be. Christine Sinclair is the top scorer of any gender on any team in the world. What? And she plays for U.S. women's soccer, and we literally never talk about her that sort of like so outside cool. of soccer world. She's amazing. And she's like in her late 30s at this point and remains one of the best and most competitive players in the That's game. That's incredible. She's the LeBron of soccer. She's amazing. And so is Sophia Smith is like a very young player who also plays for the thorns and she's like in her early twenties and she and Sinclair are like best buds and like adorable. Like everything about it is wonderful. The politics are like actively good of the players and the fan organizations. Like it's really, I can't say enough good things about women's soccer. I love it so much. Oh, man, I'm I'm so excited that, that you get to watch it and also that you get to have a fan organization that has really good politics that like you're excited to be like connected to because that is not always a given. Rose City Riveters, man. They're incredible. They're incredible. Rose City. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, man, Portland's so cool. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. So my nice thing to end on is that a friend did this really sweet thing, which is that she was texting with like another friend of ours and they were like talking about one of them was like someone I I just met and that person was like 
I, I, Sally seems great. I love Sally. And then they replied, I, Sally's the best. I love Sally. And they took a screenshot of the conversation and sent it to me and was like, yeah, it was like, um, this, this person that you just met, like really like thinks you're cool. And like, told me, but in, in also like in the screenshot was them also saying really nice things about me. And it was just like, so nice. Like people talking about you when you're not there saying nice things about you, like it made me feel so good. Like it was great. Yeah. It's wonderful. I have had people do that with me. Um, my mom is a big fan of doing that. She'll be like, I was talking to this person today and they said this and this and this about you. And I thought you should know. And it's like really lovely. The screenshot really takes it to the next level. That's incredible. And this is a thing that I used to be much more sort of like attentive and assiduous about, but like, I got to get back on this too. Cause boy, oh boy, it's so fun to tell people how much other people like them too. Yeah, because it's really great. Doesn't is there anyone who's like moving through the world with no doubt about whether people like them as much as they want to be liked? No. If they are, that's maybe not a person that I would feel that I could relate to right. in a deep way. It's like maybe Tar. Maybe Tar. You know. People who maybe should be wondering a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was just really nice. And, um, when I was like looking at our prep document and I saw a nice thing to end on, I was like, I feel like this is the definition of a nice thing. So it's such a nice thing to end on. And it feels like the note that I'm taking from this for myself is I got to get back to doing some of that. Cause I really like it when I do it for other people. Yeah. Like tell people when, you know, you're, you're talking to someone and a third person comes up and you like are both gushing about them. That's just so fun. Love it. Um, Aubrey, I cannot thank you enough. I feel like every time I have you on, I'm like, you have to watch between one and four movies and we're going to record for one to three hours. And I just appreciate it. You are like, I loved having you on the podcast. The like heads are so psyched every time you come on. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am so psyched every time I come on. This is a real joy. Uh, and listen, I can't wait to come back and talk about whatever the next Kate Blanchett property is okay thank you for listening to this episode of oh i like that please rate us and review us follow on instagram at oh i like that pod and you can email us at oh i like that pod at gmail.com aubrey where can people find you online uh i am at yr fat friend on twitter and instagram and uh you can find me hosting maintenance phase every couple of weeks wherever you get your podcasts hell yeah uh oh yeah and you can follow me at sally t Uh, This episode of Oh, I Like That was produced by Sally and Aubrey and edited by Aram. Amber Seeger designed our logo. Ayo, we did it. Ayo, we did it.